Hi, this is T. Stevens with the RN Prep Podcast. I'm so excited today to introduce you to a great friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Kathy Durham. Kathy is the uh, director of the DNP programs at the Medical University of South Carolina, and she is also an officer in the Naval Reserves. She is going to share a little bit about what life is like for her on the front lines now, serving as part of the Naval Reserves in New York City in response to the COVID pandemic. So I think you will be very interested in hearing what she has to say, and it gives us just a brief glimpse into the lives of these clinicians who are sacrificing so much and serving at this time of crisis in our world. And I just really appreciate Kathy taking a few minutes to talk with us. So I hope you'll sit back and enjoy the next few minutes as we learn more about what life is like on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. Well, it is my pleasure today to introduce you to a great friend and colleague, Dr. Kathy Durham, whose official role is director of the DNP programs at the Medical University of South Carolina. Kathy, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is an incredibly busy time for you to chat with me. Um, it's, it's just a pleasure for you to join us today on the RN Prep podcast. Thank you, Tisa. I'm really happy to be here. Um, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to um, invite you to share a little bit about the many roles and hats that you're juggling right now. I think you can do that much better than I can and just tell a little bit about um, how your life has changed um, most recently um, in how you are working and the things that you're doing as a nurse practitioner. So um, one of the other roles that I've had, and I've been part of this for the last 25 years, is that I am part of the currently part of the U.S. Navy Reserve. So I was commissioned as an ensign into the Navy active duty in 1995 after I graduated with my Bachelor's of Science in Nursing degree, and I was active duty for 11 years. I made the decision to transition into the Reserves in 2007, and I have been doing that um, since then. I currently, on a normal day, serve as the senior nurse executive for operational health support unit Jacksonville, Florida, which means essentially that I'm responsible for the reserve corps, um, Navy nurse corps, um, nurses that live in or drill in the states of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and Puerto Rico. So we have, it varies, but we're around 150 to 160 total nurses that I have responsibility for um, mentoring, uh, leadership, annual evaluations, supporting their career development, those types of things. So your life has really changed in the past few weeks. You have moved from predominantly working as a reserve naval officer um, and being more full-time in the academic setting and as a nurse practitioner. Those roles have kind of been flip-flopped. Um, can you tell a little bit about how uh, this happened and the beginning um, stages of where you actually uh, got to where you are now. Can you describe that a little bit for us? I was going to be mobilized to New York City on Friday, March 2nd, and that happened rather quickly. We were um, designated via a list that came out from the Bureau of Medicine of those who might be eligible. Um, people were queried to see if they were part of their hospital's COVID um, critical response team, and those individuals were not 
immediately mobilized to go. The rest of the um, people were added throughout that day. Um, I was one of those people that was um, tagged to be mobilized, and I was able to um, spend the next two days really getting ready to go and getting my um, flight arrangements and travel plans set. I arrived in New Jersey at Fort Dix on Sunday afternoon and um, met up with the team of individuals. Originally, there were 120 Navy reservists that were there that are considered individual augmentees and are part of the Navy Medicine Support Team. In those um, early days when I was here, I was sort of considered advanced party. There was a group of us that were designated as um, the initial leadership team while we were waiting our liaison officers who arrived later in the week. So we spent that time um, getting everyone checked in. We all arrived to the hotel on Sunday and Monday morning. Uh, we met up and went down to the Javits Center where um, basically the headquarters is in addition to the hospital. So in the headquarters area, um, Army is there, FEMA, Health and Human Services, um, Air Force, and the Navy um, contingencies are all there, and many other people from other agencies, I'm probably missing naming, um, New York Hospital System and others. We fall directly under the Army, and that is who is providing us the support um, and identifying the locations with the New York Hospital System where our members are going. The other side, the hospital side that you've seen on the news, I actually have not toured that facility. I have seen it from a partitioned area above and looking down into it. That is currently being staffed by Navy, Air Force, and Army personnel, both active duty and reserve. I have not had an opportunity to tour that site, but there are still patients um, who are present there. And, and much of what's going on in the Javits Center in regards to healthcare is available on uh, public news for your consumption. Um, but our team, we worked with the Army to navigate um, and develop the process, and ultimately we established originally five hospitals where Navy reservists would be embedded, and we did site visits there and established that plan and processes to get them ready and to get them oriented and to get started. So um, that was an interesting process to go through and we were able to navigate all of the barriers and we had boots on ground within 48 hours of our arrival. Since then we have added uh, two additional sites for a total of seven where we have our complete contingency of 200 Navy Reserve nurses and physicians that are in teams of varying sizes and are customized really to what the sites needed and the resources that they requested. Wow, that is a huge transition from acad an academic setting um, and your typical practice setting to um, to what you're doing now. So I imagine that your your background in the military and um, specifically your role as a medical professional in the Navy has well prepared you for times like these, and you are taught or um, trained to be ready to go um, and be prepared, but can you talk a little bit about how you uh, were prepared for a time like this and um, what knowledge and skills that you have used um, you know, throughout your career that you're drawing on now that have been useful to you as you've transi transitioned to this role? Really tapped into my background in education um, for my doctoral degree where you have to understand organizational culture, mm -hmm. organizational leadership, 
um, how you assess problems and evaluate from a kind of root cause standpoint, make sure that you understand the resources and support services that are available. So we had a lot of those discussions. Mm. We were ultimately able to have boots on ground by Wednesday at four sites. So we did four initial site visits. Um, we did receive agreement to do that. And based on that, we were able and their needs and assessing their needs, we were able to, from the 120 people that we had, we were able to carve out as close as we could get to the specialties requested individuals to meet those needs. One of the main things that we've done is we've implemented this utilizing team nursing and team healthcare. And what I mean by that is there really is a strong need for critical care nurses and emergency room nurses who have critical care experience because a large number of the patients in the hospital are ventilated. We did not, the majority of the nurses that we have are either med surge or OR nurses. Mm -hmm. and we have a sprinkling of, you know, some NICU nurses or psych mental health. We, we do have critical care nurses, but the largest number really were the others. So we offered to all of the sites and it's worked out incredibly well is that we might give you, you want 18 nurses. We only have nine critical care that we can give you, but with those nine, they're all buddied up with a med surge nurse. Mm. So those two people, and this is really um, following the critical care um, association's recommendations for this scheduling um, model, this tiered mm. scheduling model that really looks at how can you increase the number of patients that a critical care nurse can take care of, and that is by having um, ancillary staff. So we, we did that. We also put nurse practitioners and non-critical care physicians into the critical care setting partnered with a critical care physician. So we have nurse practitioners who maybe have never worked in critical care who are working um, hand in hand with an ED or critical care doc who's helping to manage you know, th that level of care. And then with them is the critical care nurse and the med surgeon nurse. So that's how we set up the staffing model and it's worked really well. It's worked That's, so well, in fact, in that some of the areas have opened up Navy-run um, additional ICUs that we're staffing completely ourselves. So that's what this has been like for me since I've been here. We have staffed seven sites now throughout all of the um, boroughs around New York. We have a total of 200 Navy nurses and doctors that are boots on ground in these sites providing direct patient care. Um, I am assuming more of that senior nurse executive role, doing administrative stuff two days a week. But the other five days a week, um, I'm, I'm starting this weekend where I am going to shadow my nurses in all seven sites and spend a shift, you know, rotating through on various days of the week with different individuals so that I can be embedded in their teams, really have a deeper understanding of what their what's going well, what they're still struggling with, what they need, um, offering support and nursing care, working on those teams myself. So that's what I'll be doing until we start um, what's called demobing, where we plan to return back home. Wow, that is, gosh, I can't imagine all of the things that you're learning just minute by minute and all the, the thinking that you have to be um, 
doing just, I don't know how you're even sleeping um, with all of this. Um, okay. So I've been making notes and there's, I want to revisit a few of the things that you've talked about, if that's okay. Um, when you did the site visits, um, can you walk me through what a, 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 t a typical site visit looked like when you first got there? Sure. So um, what we did is essentially I, I was given a list of the chief nursing officers and the chief medical officers at all 11 sites. Prior to going out, we asked, and, and this is so Army, and then what's driving the Army a little bit is the New York Hospital Association. Mm -hmm. so we actually requested from them on that first day, who needs us the most? Tell us who's drowning right now and give us a prioritized list of your top five. And so they gave us that list of the top five and we contacted on day one. I just called the chief nursing officer and, and I said, you know, I'm from Captain Durham from the Navy reserves and we're here to help. Can we meet with you today? And everybody said yes. So we took a team of four. There were um, two nurses and two physicians and we drove to the site and they, you know, they, we put on our appropriate PPE, which for the site visits um, included an N95 mask with a surgical mask over. Um, we did go into, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. We went in with our PPE. We were met at the, the front of the hospital and in every site we would go into a conference room to start. We were very intentional about not making any promises in regards to the number or types of personnel because we wanted to assess the first four sites we were going to for that group of, or five sites for that group of 120 that were here. And we wanted to not, you know, first, we didn't want to give first dibs to anyone, so to speak. So we, we were upfront about that to start. Mm -hmm. We have 120 people, five sites. We're going to divvy this up, but what do you need? Mm -hmm. And we would take notes on what they needed. And um, then we asked to do a site visit to really go into the spaces where they envisioned extra help would work. So we toured the ICUs, whether that be the ICU that was now in the emergency department or if it was the ICU that was in the operating room, wherever if the expanded ICU, we toured that. We also toured, toured the emergency room. And if they still had a med surge floor, we toured the med surge floor as well. Then we would go back to the conference room and we would talk about some of the things that we needed. Sometimes they had a deeper understanding of what it meant to be a reservist and how you know traveling in 48 hours would mean that there would be some things to shore up in regards to logistics or what we, you know, scrubs, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They didn't understand that. And we had to sort of talk through that um, so that they understood, you know, us asking for scrubs why we're asking for scrubs is because we only have, you know, Navy PT gear uniforms and we are, we don't want to contaminate our uniforms since that's what we have to wear. And we, and laundry services mm -hmm. and get things clean, but it's taking 48 hours to get it back. So if you only have two uniforms, we, you know, we have to protect those types of things. So we would mm -hmm. have conversations. Um, and then really talking about, so if we were to send 40 people here tomorrow, can you support orientation? Do you have the staff to do that? And so um, those types of conversations would be had. Everyone was at what absolutely um, was able to accommodate any of those kind of unique and special needs that we had. Everyone accommodated orientation. 
um, getting licensed and something that's called a TKID, which is an individual provider's number that gives you access to EMRs and Pixis machines and that type stuff. Mm -hmm. What we have found is that it varies by site in regards to how fast that can be done. And it just depends on what their resources are like internally. But that's really been the only thing that's been delayed. Otherwise, um, I think they've been onboarding travel nurses for the last month. So onboarding an additional team of 40. They figured it out, even mm -hmm. if they had some unique things. That's what that would look like. And then we would go home that, you know, Monday and Tuesday night, we went home and we sat down with our manning documents and distributed first our critical care nurses and our critical care doctors. Then we matched up with each of those individuals, someone who would make a good team. So if we had every critical care nurse, we would start by assigning them an OR or a med surge nurse. Mm -hmm. And some places wanted more med surge than critical care. So we assigned that some wanted less. We had a couple of places that really needed some additional um, behavioral health components, and we had a small number of assets. So we distributed those that requested it. They received the you know two psych nurses or psych MPs or psychiatrist. Um, and there were there are two sites that are still doing trauma surgeries. We had trauma surgeons. Mm -hmm small numbers. So we, we put those individuals there. So we had, you know, some unique ways that we could staff. Something else that came up in one of the site visits was they still are running two med surge floors, but occasionally they have to up ramp to have vented patients that are there while they're waiting for an ICU bed. I happened to know that I was one of the nurses that was coming had just taught a rapid critical care two-day course at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. And I knew she was gonna be on my team. So in the meeting, I said to the leadership at this particular hospital, I know you're asking for this training or you're saying that this is what you need. I actually have someone coming. They won't be here till Friday, but would you be able to support training for rap rapid critical care for your med surge nurses, can you support putting the, the individuals in that course, taking them off the floor? It's a day and a half. Can you mm -hmm. do that? And she said, if you can bring the course, I will make that happen. Mm. And we have, we have now taught three courses there. She absolutely staffs the floor so that no one is put in a stressful situation because members are down in a training. They've asked for more courses um, we've expanded that capability to three other sites now, and we will be going into our third week of training next week, where we're still booked Monday through Friday next week doing this training. Um, another site identified that two of their associate directors of nursing were sick, mm. and they had onboarded a lot of contract nurses. They had their own nurses to manage and they were really struggling from a leadership standpoint. We had two nursing assets that I knew were coming who served in roles as director of nursing in their sites. Oh. So they were able to have those conversations and they're serving as assistant directors of nursing within two days of being met by these sites. They have them in leadership roles where they're briefing CEOs, CFOs, 
um, nursing uh, department heads, they've taken on a leadership role. So we're filling gaps there. In addition, we had another site, their staff education and training department. Had, no one had had a day off for 30 days. Wow. Providing support services there as well. So we are not only seeking to assess what their provider and nursing need might be, but also what other roles do individuals there have that have been really stressed and do we have that capability on our manning document that we can support that and it's worked really well to do that gosh there's so much to be learned from that just in our everyday life you know when we're not in the midst of a crisis you know how we can better utilize the knowledge and the skills um, of our team members and (laughs) Um, to help carry that load and it, just so much more of a team model I hear in just about everything you're saying. I think it's it's fantastic the um, the examples that you're giving. Um, when you first got there and went in for these site visits, do you remember your first impressions or what your first thoughts were? Um, was it what you expected or was there anything that um, just really stood out to you um, that that made an impression on you? So the first day, and I, I was just speaking about this with someone earlier, and again, this this part of what I'm going to talk about is just really um, Kathy Durham. Yeah. Me, me going in and having 25 years of nursing experience and, and feeling like I had seen, I've been to Haiti um, after the earthquake, I've worked in hospitals, I've worked in primary care, and feeling like I had seen a lot of stuff. Um, the first hospital that we went to, the complexity, you, you could really tell that the patients were very, very sick there. And there were some things that I saw in the ICUs where the pumps and that type of equipment were outside the door. So mm-hmm. the doors were shut and everything was outside the door. But the number of drips and drugs that the patients had, and, and it was all of them, as far as 20, 30, 40 vented patients in a particular area with all of the pumps outside the door, all of them on, I mean, multiple, multiple, multiple medications. I hadn't seen that layer of complexity with that number of patients ever. Mm -hmm. So that was really striking to me that this isn't a couple of sick people. This is a lot of sick people, more than I had ever seen. Um, I also hadn't seen proning teams. So teams of individuals who come around and take vented patients or non-vented CPAP patients and they lay them on their stomach. And that's actually been really successful in helping with oxygenation. And um, you you think about that from the pathophysiology standpoint, Mm -hmm. working really well. But if you have a patient who's vented on paralytics, turning them over onto their stomach and how you maintain all of the lines and their their tubes and all of that takes an army of people. So to mm-hmm. see that in action, I had never seen that before. So mm-hmm. that was that was really like that's a lot to to do in the midst of doing all of this patient care and how do you do that for everybody and and make that work for both the staff that's doing it as well as the patient. So I was but that but in general I would say that hospital seemed to have a room for everyone and staff for everyone. And although it was complex and very, very busy, it was not chaotic. So I was reassured by that. And that was the first place that we went. The second hospital that we went to, they had 
they were in the midst of their peak. So the day before was the highest number that they had ever seen. They had a two to 300 increase in the number of patients on vents within a 48 hour time frame. They had expanded to ventilated patients in essentially every space in that hospital, ORs, two to three patients in an OR suite. But what really struck me was their emergency department and patients were, it, gurneys were um, spanning walls with very little to none, no space in between mm. and two to three deep. Mm. Um, and they, there were teams going around just to check for, for pulse ox to see where they were saturating on individuals that were, that were waiting for space for more intensive care. That really stopped me in my tracks. I first thought, how are we seeing this in the United States? Mm -hmm. um, this number of patients and the healthcare team, I mean, they were working hard. The other thing that struck me, and I'll pause on this for a second, is the individuals that are working in these hospitals, they might tear up when they saw us coming in in uniform, and that was very meaningful for them. Mm -hmm. But their ability to have an engaging conversation with you while simultaneously directing and offering care to other staff members and being able to engage in a conversation about what their needs were and focus on what you were asking and be able to provide direction or even shift direction was phenomenal. These are truly amazing individuals who were able to compartmentalize some of the stress and really focus on, on what we were asking and be able to shift because they didn't know that they were for sure getting us. They mm -hmm. didn't say you're getting 30, that, so they might. And so within a moment's notice say, yes, we'll take your team of Navy people and this is how we'll make that happen. Their ability to do that was phenomenal. They're resilient. Yes, so resilient. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and all over the place, all the hospitals have really highly resilient people and great teamwork. So that really, we left that day and got in the car and it was quiet. All four of us were just really quiet. And I think you'll appreciate this, Tease. The physician who has deployed to Afghanistan twice, he is a trauma surgeon. Mm -hmm. uh, he has seen incredible things. We took off our N95 masks and put back on our surgical masks to ride in the car together. And he looked over at me and he said, I don't think I'll ever forget the look on the patient's faces in the emergency department. And I said, I know. I found myself where I started really trying to convey um, empathy and kindness with just my eyes as I scanned the room so that they would not be scared by seeing us in uniform. After some time there, I found myself not making eye contact with individuals because I was connecting with that fear that they had. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to get emotional while we were in there. And he said, yeah, I, I felt like seeing their faces was really reminiscent of perhaps seeing pictures prior to patients entering into the gas chamber during World War II. Yeah. You knew or you got the sense that they knew they were really in dire straits. Yeah. Um, so for I that think the, yeah, I think that we are seeing now and, and it, it's just going to greatly increase um, 
the rates of moral distress in our clinicians is just, I think, um, we're just seeing it, you know, uh, some symptoms of it now, but I think after, um, you know, things start to settle down a little bit, we're going to need to do some real work with our caregivers um, and be prepared for that because um, right now we're at the height of this response, you know, and all of our energy is going towards that. But um, I think uh, we're going to have to be prepared to really provide some intensive care, emotional, mental um, for these clinicians, because that's when, when it's going to hit, when we, things calm down and we don't have these adrenaline rushes going on. And we're thinking back to these experiences. I think, thank you for sharing that. I think that's, um, I think that the story you just told is probably, um, spot on for many, many people who are in these situations. No. And you know, it's something that came up on the third, I think it was day three. So at this point we had been in all, and I, I received feedback from the, the staff here that really were like, thank you for going in and seeing this before we went. And thank you. We were honest. When we came back at night and said, this is, if you're on, these are the people on this team. And now I'm going to tell you about that site. And we were honest about it, not to scare people, but to manage their expectations. So we, and then we went where everyone, if they were on orientation, we went back while they were on orientation so that they could see us, that we were there, we mm-hmm. were committed know you're here you're not alone and I was standing in with a room with the nurses and the the staff there that we were supporting had stepped out and one of the nurses turned around and said I'm really really worried that I'm not going to be able to provide the nursing care that I was trained and educated to do and the type of care that I'm I'm used to providing and what does that mean mm-hmm. and so we had just a really good discussion about that, all of us together. And um, I referenced the ANA document on, um, et, you know, the ethical response during mm-hmm. this. I talked about in the American Medical Association. And, you know, I set the stage for them to really have permission that it's going to, you know, we are not functioning at the level that we can't. There's not the resources, the time, the personnel to provide the space, the physical space to provide the level of care that you're used to providing. And so that, that, it, that looks very, very different. And it's, yeah, it's look- wartime triage. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, and, and they said, you know, thank, thank you. Thank you very much for that. But it's still, that sense is still present. So we have um, two to, it's right now three days. It was two days where we are having um, chaplain services and um, we have established resiliency teams with our psychiatrists and our behavioral health um, that are doing that and having those conversations. I'm hearing, and obviously anyone could potentially be at risk but I have heard from some of the physicians who, you know, maybe are in specialties where patients generally don't get sick and die, like orthopedics or right. anesthesia, urology, psych. They're managing different settings that they normally don't work in. And the mortality rate, as everyone knows, is fairly high. And so they have shared this is really challenging for them. They're not used to this. They mm-hmm. They don't have to call families on a daily basis and have those conversations. So 
Um, you know, I think that that's hard. The idea of patients being in rooms behind doors and all the equipment outside to protect mm-hmm. the staff has created situations where patients might be passing away alone. Right. And what does that look like and feel like and how do you process that? So there some some people are being very intentional about changing some of those things to to a better model. Um, some places don't have the capacity to do that. So I think you really hit the nail on the head. We're going to have some work to do and need to be really kind and patient with each other. It was really early on that as we were kind of navigating things, someone said, the biggest thing that we have to do here, regardless of what else happens, is we have to be flexible. Mm-hmm. Just cannot be rigid. You have to be flexible above all else. And I've absolutely taken that to heart. Um, yeah. When we all have our moments, you just have yeah. to play and then remind yourself, we above all else, I have to be flexible. And that does Flexible mean- and forgiving. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that's... It, it, in general, I'm talking to so many people, you know, who aren't even in healthcare and um, the disruption to just normal life. I mean, not even anywhere near what you're describing, but it's just been so distressing. And flexibility is key. I think, um, you know, I, it, with my students, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing that, you know, who their lives have been just completely disrupted. And I think that's, um, that's important for all of us to just, you know, forgive and be flexible and be willing to adapt. Um, because, you know, if, if we try to be rigid, we're, you know, we're going to have a lot of problems. Um, before I switch gears, I want, before we, um, we have a few minutes left and I do want to talk to you more on a personal level, but I, I have a question that I'm just dying to ask you, how does this compare to your previous deployments? And how well did that prepare you? I mean, are you, did you approach this essentially 48 hours you had, right? Yes. To get everything together. Do you stay in, this is me, a non-military geek, you know, kind of asking this question here. Do you always stay ready for that? Or was this, how did you prepare for this? Or how did you approach this rapid um, change in your life? Well, so, you know, I've only been, to Haiti. Um, okay. So that when that was, I knew a month in advance, six weeks in advance that I was going to Haiti. Um, family nurse practitioners are not, there's not a huge call for us on the front lines. And that is the job that the Navy, um, that is my specialty in the Navy. So okay. speaking, I have done things stateside. Um, well, I've worked in Haiti. So I, that's not, um, that's not just, uh, <laughs> that's a rough place. I love Haiti and I love the Haitian people, but you know, don't sell yourself short. That's, that's pretty, um, that's pretty big. Yeah. So that, that was that experience. Um, but the short answer, and if anyone in the military is listening, particularly my bosses, yes, of course we were always ready to go. Always ready. <laughs> um, you know, I think for me, really what I tapped into is, is on that day I started because the, it was every two hours it was changing mm-hmm. and the pace was changing and the expectations were changing. For me, it was my husband who is a um, combat veteran, two tours. And it was also changing for him because now it was something we thought as a family, we were never going to have to go through again. 
Mm -hmm. Those two deployments really impacted us um, with there was a lot of fear involved and a lot of unknown. Um, but he'd never been in the role of, of sending his spouse away. Uh, it was always the shoe was on the other foot. But he very quickly was, you know, pulling me aside. We would go sit on the porch and he would say, OK, you're starting to worry about things that are outside of your control. You're worrying about stuff from two weeks from now. Your task for today is to figure out this. Wow. And he did a lot of that. Um, you know, we joke around now, I got this packing list, you know, a general packing list from the Navy. And I, we went and spent $400 at Walmart. And then, you know, 16 hours later, I'm finding out that I'm going to be in a hotel. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't need an ISO map for my cot in the field. <laughs> I'm not staying in Central Park. So, um, but it, that really was what that was like, where I... Um, and I went into this with that mindset when I left on Sunday, but I would say for me, Friday and Saturday, I would find myself trying to control what was going to happen mm -hmm. in a week. And he would say that you don't know what that's going to be like. Let's scale back to what you can worry about today. And um, I also needed to make a packing list. And because of the cognitive overload, I felt like I was experiencing. I asked for a family, you know, Emma mm -hmm. to get involved, who is our 12 year old daughter to help me pack you know, toiletries and that type things. And she checked things off the list and she got involved and it was, it got her a little bit excited and proud. Um, and then Mike was really just don't think about today. This is what has to be accomplished right now. And then let's shore that up. So that, that was the mindset of going into it. Um, and I think the first week we were working really, really, really long days and, uh, you know, a little worried and scared of the unknown. I think anyone going into these hospitals um, or into your own hospital, it's such a different situation. It is scary and the news is scary and people are getting really sick and it, and it doesn't seem to make sense as to who it's going to impact. It's young people, it's older people, it's healthy people, it's sick people. So it is scary. And so I think taking that moment to stop yourself from that fear cascade and and really thinking, what do I need to focus on right now? And when you're going into the hospital, the right now is, do you have your PPE? And is it available? And how are you protect yourself so that you can protect your coworkers and your family? And don't, don't start anticipating the next 12 hours, really shorten that time frame so that you can focus on the task that you're doing and doing it in a way that is safe and protective for you, for the patient, for your coworkers. You've just beautiful, beautifully described the two of the four P's of resilience and that's priorities and perspective, you know, maintaining perspective, taking your foot off the cortisol, you know, pedal um, that just kind of sends our emotions into, you know, just um, extremes where things get out of control, but some, maintaining some sort of perspective on the situation and then recognizing what the priorities are at this moment. I think that's so important. And I think um, also the, the reliance on the support that people are willing to give you, you know, mm -hmm. um, and recognizing, you know, to listen to other people when you're starting to lose perspective, hear those voices in your head or listen to who's around you that can help you draw things back in and um, get a rein on, um, the situation is, is so very helpful. Um, so, I mean, like, 
what else are you doing? I, I, I can't imagine um, what it's like for you at the end of the day and when you try to shut your eyes to go to sleep. So what are the things that you're doing to maintain your own well-being and, um, you know, sen- coping skills with all that that's leaving your family behind and, and what you're seeing every day? So I'm trying to exercise every day, um, whether that be, you know, last night we went to Times Square. We are in masks at all times, but spending time outside. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have meetings at the end of the day, our debrief meetings, and then go from about eight to 10. And so every hospital gets an opportunity to talk about what happened that day at their site, what worked well, what didn't, what do we need to be thinking about and anticipating. And in those meetings, there's a lot of, you know, there's humor and um, probably some sarcasm and some uh you know, we we laugh we uh-huh. together we've got um there are relationships friendships that have been built and navigated that's some of the feedback we've gotten from places just to digress for just a minute they're shocked that we haven't worked together before there is something about this uniform that when you come together and you put this uniform on you could be from anywhere in the world mm-hmm. and it's on a uniform that says U.S. Navy, or I'm a Navy nurse, I'm a Navy doctor, we will work together as a team. They've been shocked that we don't know each other. That we I love that. Yeah, we just, it's, and I've said to them, we put the uniform on and we automatically assume we're friends. Um, and we work together and we were able to take this, you know, reserve kind of part-time culture that we have and make it full-time and execute that in many diverse situations. So we rely heavily on that. But for me, it's been trying to make really good food choices, mm-hmm. uh, trying to stay hydrated with drinking lots of my, you know, my bubbly water. I've got to have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and exercise. Uh, there's days when it's rained and I, so I've started, the, I'm in a 26 floor hotel. People do the stairs and then you yeah. go in the room and do some calisthenics. So I think those are the things. And the debrief meeting, the first week I would come back to my room and I would have um, I, I, the worry brain is what I call it, or busy brain. And it would wake me up multiple times at night thinking, worrying about what I had missed, gotten done. Um, now that we're settled and people are in a routine, I'm, I'm really sleeping fine. Yeah. Good. And where are you get? Are, are they providing your meals or are you able to go out and... Um... You know, are, are your basic needs, how are they being met? Like, do you have to um, figure out what you're going to eat or is that taken care of for you? No, we have to figure it out. And, you know, that's the, that's the great thing about being in New York. Um, there are 24-hour delis, like, on every corner. So yeah. I've figured out my favorites. And so in the morning I go get what I normally would eat at home for breakfast. They do great salads. But there's also mo- many restaurants who have, delivery options um, so that mm-hmm. people are really tapping into that. We also have some targets within walking distance that's, you know, people have some stuff in their room. Um, there are, when we first got here, they were giving us MREs and thankfully we're not relying on those. <laughs> 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 people are donating so much food. We've been joking around that we've got to really curtail that or we, you know, this won't be a deployment where you lose weight. Uh, <laughs> Well, um, I have so much more I'd love to talk to you about, um, but our time is almost up. But hopefully we can talk again, maybe in a, a two or three weeks and kind of see where you are there. And um, really what I, I would like to talk about in the future is how you're going to use all of these learning experiences and all of this um, 
stuff you're absorbing um, as a, a family nurse practitioner and as a, an educator. Um, I imagine so many of this will be integrated in beautiful ways in, in all of your work. Um, but I, I do want to ask you uh, one more question. Is there anything you need? How can we help you, um, you and your colleagues? Well, I think, I think we're good. People are getting a lot of gift, gift boxes. We've, we received 500 fog proof goggles from REI, um, that are, we're, we're sharing with our, with the teams, um, lots of that kind of stuff. I think for me, what I would say is people dropping me a text message or a quick email just to let me know that they're thinking about us. Um, I, that's what really everybody appreciates because we know there was a big push of that the first week, but it's continued. And for me, that's really meaningful that people are still checking in. They still know you're there at seven o'clock every night here in New York, we can go outside of our hotel and people are hanging out their windows, banging on their pots and pans and thanking us. And that really um, just makes the, our service here so meaningful. Um, but it's the kind words and taking time to do that. I think sometimes that's the hardest thing for people to do. Yeah. To remember. And that really has been, um, that's brought me to tears. A student sent me a message yesterday and I was just happened to pull it up on my phone, reading it while I was in orientation, helping with orientation on a break. And, you know, my eyes filled up with tears because it does mean a lot to know that people are thinking about you, that the video, um, short little video snippets I'm sending back for them to keep them in, engaged and yeah what their my mission when I leave here for my students is that they they really really see what the DMP education and degree has afforded me in regards mm -hmm. to my leadership and my professionalism and navigating this situation but I'm targeting these chief nursing officers who are also DMP prepared or even my reservists who are DMP prepared and really tapping into how is this degree changing how you are working and changing how you're providing care and how you're working on a team? Because I think sometimes people don't really know that that's going to make a big difference. And this pandemic has proven the value of this degree across the board. Oh, I, I, I think so too. I, absolutely. And, and also um, you're raising awareness of the benefits of the military for nurses, sure. um, you know, and gosh, all of the, the ways I can't even imagine all of the ways that has prepared you to take this lead um, in this capacity. But um, I know many, many great things. And I, and you know, that's what resilience is, is learning through adversity. And you've, you've beautifully and very eloquently described so much of the growth that we're all going to experience, even during a time like this, when there's so much bad that we're hearing, but there's much good that's coming out of this and the relationships that you've developed, the learning about team nursing, which I do want to go in at a later time because I was trained on team nursing in the eighties, you know, and it just <laughs> makes so much sense to me. Um, and I've heard other people say in hospitals that, you know, they're going back to team nursing. So I love that too. But um you know, please know, and, and I'm saying this to you as well as Mike and Emma, because they're a part of this as well um, in supporting you being there. But I love you and I appreciate you so much. And 
Um, just so proud to know you and your colleagues and all that you all are doing. And um, please know that you're in my prayers every day. And if there's um, anything we can do for you here, um, please don't hesitate to ask. But I do encourage everyone else to reach out. I, we can't underestimate the power of just a few simple words or text messages or emails and um you know, I've learned that from the Holocaust survivors I work with in the midst of just horrible conditions. What they remember the most, even all these years later, is that someone smiled at them. Someone gave them a kind word. Someone offered them a piece of bread, you know, and that's what kept them going for another day. Um, and so that's something that I have learned that um, we may not be able to um, or we may feel like we can't do much for someone, but sometimes it's just a word um, and just something very simple. So I'm sending you big virtual hugs. Can't wait till you're home. Um, and again, thank you so much for taking the time um, to talk about this today. It's so valuable. And I think so many people are going to get a lot from this. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you. You uh, made me tear up a little bit. I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to I'm talking, you know, I'm, I get passionate about stuff and um, this is, there's a lot of good things going on and a lot of lessons to be learned. So I appreciate the opportunity. I miss you, friend. <laughs> I miss you too. <laughs> and you look beautiful. Um, and um, I can't wait for other people to learn from you because I, I just, this is incredible. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast episode with Dr. Kathy Durham. I think that she speaks of many things that are relevant to the concept of resilience, especially related to the use of support and humor and um, flexibility, perseverance, all of those different concepts that we talk about when we are learning about how to be more resilient. I think what she and her colleagues are doing right now in the midst of this crisis are great representations of how we learn and we choose to learn and grow in response to adversity. So I really am grateful to her and all of her um, colleagues who have given up so much of their lives to go and serve on the front lines. And I encourage you to share messages of hope and encouragement and, um, of course, keep them in your prayers. But anytime you can to, to give a word of thanks or appreciation to um, not just the military personnel that are serving, but also any of our colleagues who are facing this battle on a daily basis. Um, and, you know, just remember that it's, it's not easy for them in any way and that um, your words of encouragement and hope and appreciation means so much to them. So thanks for listening, and I look forward to talking to you again on the RN Prep Podcast. Hope you have a very blessed day.